Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Kim Ritchie. She's an associate professor of genetics and prokaryotic cell biology at uh, University of uh, South Carolina, Beaufort. And we're going to talk about uh, microbes associated with corals and coral reefs and uh, go into that. So, Kim, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, what got you into uh, coral reefs and studying them and prokaryotes? It seems like everyone's uh, into eukaryotes and prokaryotes are forgotten. (laughs) Yeah, that's the challenge. Um, I actually got started as an undergraduate at the University of South Carolina, Aiken, uh, working on, and actually my project was looking at bacteria on corals. And at the time, uh, very little was known about that. So very little work had been done on this. Um, And it's also a time when coral diseases started exploding. So I don't know how familiar listeners are with um, coral bleaching and then coral diseases, but corals are animals, um, but they have this obligate symbiosis with a intracellular single-celled algae. Um, it's a single-celled dinoflagellate, really, that photosynthesizes. And oh, uh, quick, quick question here: is the um, is this an endosymbiont? So, is the um, the photosynthetic organism inside the cells that is. make up the coral, yeah. or just next to them? It's inside the gastrodermal tissue of in the coral. So yes, and and a good bit was actually known about that symbiosis at the time. Um, very little was known about other types of microbial symbiosis with corals, and that's what I studied, particularly bacteria that I could culture from corals. And um, we began uh, looking into some of the diseases that corals have because they're so super sensitive to temperature changes and. Um, this was right about the time, the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, when coral bleaching and coral diseases started um, getting a lot of attention. So what causes uh, coral bleaching and coral to uh, you know, to die off? What is that process like? How does it happen? So like I mentioned, this is an obligate symbiosis with that single-celled um, algae that lives inside of the coral tissue. Corals um, actually lay down a calcium carbonate with the help of that endosymbiont. And this is part of the reef structure that we're so used to seeing that's so important in the oceans for um, nursery habitats and shoreline protection and and, uh, other types of ecosystems. But they're super sensitive. So this symbiosis, this mutualism actually is very sensitive to even a little bit of temperature change and other things actually now, but temperature change was the big thing that got noticed early on. And um, when these corals get stressed out, sometimes they will expel that single-celled algae. And it's called coral bleaching because corals are very, very thin tissue layers, two tissue layers thick essentially. So pretty much the color that you see in corals comes from that endosymbiotic algae. And when it's expelled, all you see is that white calcium carbonate skeleton 
underneath. So it's kind of referred to as bleaching, but the tissue is actually still there. And the thing about what's, what's to um, good question. What's to prevent the photosynthetic algae from repopulating the coral? Well, that's a good question because they they often do. So um, the idea, my understanding is that there are low levels of these cells still present and they may repopulate. And then the alternate hypothesis is that they acquire these free living versions of single celled algae from the environment and repopulate. So some corals are better at repopulating after they're bleached than others. Some are a little more sensitive and almost always die, the tissue will slough off or they'll start to get disease uh, in the footprint of where the bleaching was. Um, so it depends on the coral, but it, it generally um, is trouble for the coral. So what, let's use it temperature of the ambient water, probably pH, maybe nutrient availability. Exactly. Uh, things like that. Maybe, do, you, do you think perhaps some, um, so do you think it's the coral expelling the, um, the photosynthetic bacteria, or do you think the bacteria are saying, hey, the environment here is not working out, we're getting out of here. <laughs> so the photosynthetic algae, so that actually is a eukaryote, but not a bacteria, but, but and that's a debate. Um, some people have done experiments pretty carefully showing that both can happen. So either the algae decide to hit the road or the corals um, expel them. So I think, I think the general idea is that both can happen. Yeah, because I've learned about, um, you know, viruses that uh, seem to be like commensal with their hosts. And sometimes when, when conditions get bad, you know, this guy, Forrest Rower, decided to say they're like rats leaving the ship. They, they say we're out of here or they'll, you know, <laughs> yeah. they'll turn into a more adversarial uh, form and then, you know, blow their way out. But uh, it, yeah, they, I guess it's them, them evaluating their conditions and saying it's not hospitable. Let's go. Hmm. Okay. So, um, You've been studying corals for quite a long time. How long? Uh, since 1992. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So what's, what has changed in your study over time? Like what, uh, what do you know now that wasn't known at first? And you know, what are the implications? Okay. Well, at first I was studying microbial shifts. So I was looking at what types of bacteria that are associated with the coral and the single-celled algae are present under normal conditions or um, non-stressful conditions and how that shifts when the temperatures increase. Um, so that was some of the early, the early things that we discovered that was a little surprising is that you get the shift from um, a normal bacterial composition um, to more of a pathogenic marine pathogen ecosystem type of takeover, like Vibrio type organisms, which are, are known to be marine pathogens kind of kind of shift into higher abundance on these corals. Um, oh, do they do they take up residence on the coral just like the photosynthetic bacteria did, or do they like what do they do and how do they change the ambient environment? The pathogenic ones are there. Well, that's a that's a good point, and it's it's hard to know if they're if it's just correlated with temperature. But they also grow better in warmer temperatures, but they seem to dominate the surfaces. And there are a lot of people that have been working on this since then. Um, and show that you can actually add some of these pathogenic bacteria, these vibrios back, and it can actually cause bleaching or disease in corals. Um, so that was some of the earlier work, but I actually wasn't all that interested in pathogen <laughs> work, looking at the bad bacteria. So all ocean, all organisms actually have microbes associated with them. 
very few of them are pathogenic. Um, the vast majority of microbes associated with, with hosts are beneficial. So I became interested in what these bacteria associated with corals may be doing for the host. So that was the next kind of leg of research on beneficial microbes and corals. Well, the bacteria probably, it's, I guess it's like a coral's microbiome. They're probably relying on, you know, the metabolites from the photosynthetic bacteria and perhaps from the coral itself. And they're ingesting mm -hmm. them and then spitting out their own metabolites, which benefit the coral. And you know, Exactly. So and, many different and, roles, so many different potentially beneficial roles um, in nutrient cycling. Um, have you tried to um, culture, I don't know if you call it culturing, but have you tried to like culture coral in a, in a tank and make sure that there's no bacteria or actively kill them off and see if they'll, it'll still function as a coral with, you know, the photosynthetic uh, organisms. Uh, some people have tried that. It doesn't work out well. So <laughs> that's another problem with studying corals is that they're so intricately intertwined with their endosymbiotic algae. And they also seem to need their beneficial bacteria as well. So if you add antibiotics back to corals and tanks, they, you get a microbial shift. It's generally not uh, beneficial for the coral. So it sounds like similar to us. You know, we have our uh, gut bacteria and everything, and, um, you know, without them, we don't function as well. Yep, exactly. <laughs> the same kind of example. So what, what are you trying to figure out right now? What's your current research? So I tend to do culture-based approach. I mean, when I say culture-based, I'm not talking about the coral at this point, but the bacteria. So I like to grow the bacteria from the coral and then ask what they do. Um, an awful lot of people are doing uh, metagenomics types approaches, but I like to be able to grow them in the lab so that I can do experiments with them. The problem with this is that less than 1% of bacteria can be cultured. That's an estimate. Not sure how accurate that is, but, um, but you still, it's kind of a good little single-celled model system to be able to grow some of the bacteria that are on corals and ask what they do. And one of the things that I look for is antibiotic production. So antibiotics are produced naturally from microbes and they produce them as chemical weapons to help secure a niche for themselves. Um, so it makes perfect sense that, that bacteria that have been evolving in the oceans for billions of years would kind of co-evolve this beneficial association with other ancient organisms like corals and might provide kind of a, a, the first line of defense, like an innate immune system for the coral. So some of the types of experiments that I would do would be to actually remove the, the surface slime off of the coral and see if it has antibiotic activities. And you can show that it does. And then culture some of the bacteria from that surface slime and ask if they produce antibiotics and roughly 30% of them do. Well, I don't know if you could study them alone because it sounds like, you know, the, the, uh, the bacteria without the coral and without the photosynthetic organisms, they may not produce anything that they produce in that context. And you probably can't even culture them. So it sounds like the only way to study them is in, the, in their full context, in their full environment. And then yeah. you have other trade-offs figuring out what's going on. Exactly. It's very, very hard to say for sure that they're going to be producing antibiotics on the coral surface, but it's also impossible to study them in that setting. So one of the ways that I tried to get around that is by using the coral mucus as a selection scheme. So the antibiotic activity in the coral mucus I used to 
see if I could enrich the number of antibiotic producing bacteria. So the idea is that um, if bacteria really are producing antibiotics on the coral surface, they would be immune to or resistant to that antibiotic that's present on the, the surface of the coral. So when I did this, I could actually enrich for uh, antibiotic producing bacteria. So I can get a, a higher percentage of bacteria that I cultured that produced antibiotics against a range of different pathogens. Um, the so wait, wait, what, do you, what do you mean they're what do you mean they're producing antibiotics against who or what? Well, when I test for antibiotic production, I will test them against a range of different gram positive and gram negative pathogens. Um, some of these are marine pathogens, some of them are coral pathogens, some of them are human pathogens uh, as well. Antibiotics that they produce, is that to keep other bacteria away or what would be the purpose of them? Yeah, the idea is uh, that they keep other pathogenic bacteria away. Um, one thing that I notice when I sample corals seasonally is that during warmer months and during bleaching months, they lose that antibiotic activity in the surface mucus of the coral, and they also lose the bacteria that may be producing antibiotics for them. What they gain are those pathogenic bacteria. So those Vibrio-type bacteria swamp out the other types of bacteria, and you no longer can culture bacteria that produce antibiotics, and you can no longer measure antibiotic activity in the surface of the coral. So... Um... Is it just antibiotics you think is the predominant thing they're making? Or is there, again, helpful metabolites that will help the, the photosynthetic be. organisms and the coral itself continue? Well, it could be it could be a number of things. So there are also it's also possible that it's the symbiotinia or the, the single-celled algae inside of the coral that's producing these compounds. And when they bleach or when the temperatures get lower, they go away. So you no longer have um, no longer have antibiotic activity. So it could be a number of things. It's part of the problem with corals. Um, very hard to find a good model organism for corals. Well, is it difficult to study everything in situ? I mean, why not, again, culture a coral with photosynthetic bacteria and, and sorry, you know, everything all in one place in the tank and then sample and, and sequence? Why not do it in situ and see? Because you still would never be able to tease apart whether it was the the coral animal, the endosymbiotic algae, or the bacteria that are really producing this activity. You'd almost need to be able to do exactly what you said earlier and try to get rid of the bacteria and see if that made a difference, but that's hard to do. (laughs) But at least if you could see the presence of, you know, certain compounds, that would, uh, I mean, that would tell you something, the existence or lack of them. You may not know who produced them, but at least you'd see the, uh, the existence of them. Right. And that might yeah. be a start. You know, and like do you know what's there? You just don't know who's producing it or Yeah, we know we know what's there. We know well, we know that there's antibiotic activity associated with corals. Um, we don't know what the compound is exactly. We know that there's antibiotic activity associated with bacteria that you can culture from them. <laughs> but mm. being able to say definitively what organism is producing it is a little tricky. So what is the majority of the things that are produced? Are they just, you know, antibiotics to stave off, you know, other hostile bacteria? Or, again, have you identified even a class of compounds or metabolites that are helpful so the whole ecosystem can continue? Like, you know, in addition, above and beyond antibiotics, there must be other things there. 
Yeah, it seems to be a wide range of different different things, and a lot of the chemistry hasn't been done. One thing that I do know, just based on bioassays, is that a lot of these compounds are antimicrobial peptides. So roughly half of them are antimicrobial peptides, um, and others are, are other types of compounds. Um, but but the interesting thing about this is maybe not what they are, but that the corals have this protection on them, regardless of where it comes from. And when the temperatures increase, that protection goes away. And so they tend to be more susceptible to diseases. And this is uh, one potential mechanism for why they're more susceptible to diseases when the temperatures increase. So have you looked at many different types of coral to see the, uh, you know, the expression of the antimicrobial peptides or just one? I mostly did my work with um, one of the threatened corals and a cropperid coral called Elkhorn coral. It's a common name in the Florida Keys. Um, and I've looked at a, a other acroporids um, and then other, yeah, other types of coral species in the Caribbean. Um, since that time, a lot of different people worldwide have looked at these types of activities and corals in their oceans. So yeah, it's been, it's been more carefully done. So what, what big questions are you trying to answer right now? Are you trying to see, again, who is producing these antimicrobial peptides or what the role are or what, what specific microbes that they would uh, counter? Or, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, I'm mostly interested in what they're doing and if they are doing that for the coral species. Uh, also, I'm interested in um, other types of interactions. So kind of an attempt to get at what organisms might be producing this. Um, you can actually culture those single-celled algae that live within the coral tissue. The corals don't live well without them, but if you give them the right nutrients, you can culture them. And I, um, I got some of these cultures from different laboratories and to see if they produced antimicrobial compounds. Um, but one thing I discovered before I got too far is that they also have bacteria associated with them that you can't get rid of. If you try to treat them with antibiotics, they don't grow very well. Uh, they almost need their, their bacteria to be able to grow in these cultures in the laboratory. So I started looking to see what bacteria were associated with them to, to find the least common denominator. And I found uh, about three main groups of bacteria that were in common uh, no matter what culture I used. And, and um, some of these produce antibiotics as well. Um, so it was just an attempt to try to tease these things apart. So I'm also interested in that multipartite symbiosis aspect because some of these bacteria uh, seem to help the symbiogenium grow better. They produce antibiotics. Um, they're always associated with them. So it's kind of a worlds within worlds scenario where you've got the coral and you've got the single celled algae and then you've got the bacteria that help the algae grow. And then we even did a study with um, some collaborators at the University of South Florida that found a potentially beneficial virus associated with the bacteria that seems to help the symbiogenia and the single celled algae grow that helps the coral grow. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say, right, those phages, I'm sure, associated with them. And then... Right. There may be parasites and I mean, what, why not assume that it's just like any other organism like us, like dogs, like any holobiont? Why? It seems like there's a resistance to to think that something like coral could be as complicated in its own way as we are. But it right. sounds like it is. Well, I mean, I, I, 
it's less of a resistance, I think, and just a, such an unknown. So we really just studied symbiotic associations between hosts and microbes for the past 30 years or so. So very little is known unless it's an obvious symbiosis, like the bacteria that glow in the dark inside of Hawaiian bobtail squid. That's kind of, kind of an obvious one to notice. Um, but these more subtle ones fascinate me. So I'm really more interested in that multipartite symbiosis and what they're doing for the host. Do you think, are you willing to look at a different system to get at? I mean, what my thought here is this, is that since it seems like a lot of different, uh, you know, holobionts have this same scheme, you know, bacteria, the cells of the creature, phages, their own viruses, et cetera, it's this whole complicated system. Is there a system that you could postulate or think of that would be easier to study that still has all these dynamics that may answer the questions, at least in that system. And then it'll probably translate to this system pretty closely. Yeah, there is. That is the question. And people are trying to come up with a good model system for corals. And some researchers have made a lot of progress using a, a little sea anemone called Aptasia pallida um, as a model system for corals. It doesn't lay down calcium carbonate, so it has a lot of resistors, people that don't think that it should be a model system for corals, but it's really easy to handle in the lab. And we've actually done experiments using that particular sea anemone um, and looking at some of these potentially beneficial bacteria to see if they can fight off coral disease pathogens. And we, we showed that it's a great model system for, for showing that. They can, you can actually use some of these beneficial, I'm doing air quotes around it because it's hard to prove, um, bacteria that produce antibiotics and pre-treat um, these anemones or co-infect them with coral pathogens and it prevents um, pathogen infection and death. Yeah, I mean, then you have the creatures that grow on the coral and the creatures that, even fish that swim in and out of coral and brush against it. Right. I bet you their skin is altered by that constant contact, but certainly anemones or other things that grow on the coral as a base, I mean, they're definitely going to be benefiting from something in the coral, the bacteria, the, I mean, yeah, the whole thing is just one it's ecosystem. All, it's all connected. Yeah. And that's the challenge with, with um, studying things on a coral reef. That's why the model system approach that you mentioned bringing it into the laboratories, at least you can control some things. You can't get rid of all of their beneficial microbes or you kill it, but you can at least control some of those types of variables. Maybe it's useful to study what, what is thought to be dead corals because they're probably not. There's probably some just pathogenic regime, but there's probably something there. Maybe it's more similar and stripped down. Uh, well, the, the entire microbiome changes when you have when the something is dead or overgrown. Well, right, but it still may have some kind of, um, you know, all these levels of complexity, just, uh, you know, maybe it's easier to study for some reason. Maybe it's in a, um, in a regime where we think it's dead, but it's still studyable. And there's still these relationships, even though they're just not as healthy as normal relationships. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good point when you're thinking about bleached corals where the, the animal is still alive. Um, but you don't have the single-celled algae within. That sort of is uh, variable control. One thing we see when corals die, though, is they immediately get overgrown by things that aren't normally on healthy corals, so it's, they get swamped out in a hurry. Um, seems like that would be tricky. Yeah, so things are, are being kept at bay. I mean, if I think of a, um, for instance, like a kombucha, 
you know, if I make one, there's bacteria that come in there and set up shop and acidify the environment and keep out other bacteria. So if something like that happens, I'm sure it happens in every environment with every creature. There's, you know, microbes that associate with that creature and they want to keep out other ones. So like you said, they produce antimicrobial peptides and they set up shop and keep everyone else out. Yeah. Well, very good. So what are some of the, um, I don't know, just recently, what are some of the uh, breakthroughs or insights you've had or what do you think you're approaching? Well, um, another thing that's been interesting about this is that looking at other ancient hosts in the ocean as well. So one of the other things that I've started working on recently are um, bacterial associations with, with sharks and rays. So this kind of came about based on uh, my coworkers at Moat Marine Laboratory, which is where I worked for many years. Um, we have a big shark research group there and Carl Lure and Kathy Walsh um, we're looking at wound healing in sharks and rays. So they're interested in um, sort of anecdotal information based on observations showing that sharks and rays heal their wounds very, very quickly. And these are ancient organisms that um, also have an ancient immune system that's not based on bone marrow like our immune system. They're, they're cartilaginous fishes. Um, so we ended up doing some work where their portion of this research was looking at wound healing and what types of compounds are produced. And my portion was looking to see if any bacteria associated with the epidermal surfaces produced antibiotics as well. Um, so I mentioned that my main area of research is microbial ecology. So I'm really interested in what the microbes are doing for the host. Um, but another good way to get people interested in conservation of some of these animals is, uh, especially if they're more human-centric versus planet-centric, is by pointing out that there are so many novel compounds associated with these ancient organisms that could be used for new antibiotics. So one of the problems that humans have are uh, is the antibiotic resistance bacteria that are in hospitals now in various different um, healthcare organizations. Uh, we're running out of antibiotics that actually treat them. So there's so many resistant organisms. So one of the pathogens that I screen these marine bacteria against is MRSA. So also methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, also vancomycin resistant Enterococcus, um, and some other human pathogens. So, um, so another avenue is potential drug discovery for human use. So I feel like um, that can kind of help get towards the conservation question as well. If we can get people interested in um, the fact that these organisms, whether they're sharks or coral reefs, are declining worldwide very quickly. Maybe if they're more human-centric, they would understand the importance of conservation of these organisms. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any interesting or unique or novel classes of compounds that you're finding that are produced by the bacteria you know, or in or around coral? Well, right now I'm in the screening stages. So I'm just uh, sampling as many different types of sharks and rays. Um, there's some publications that are out on that and then screening them against screening them for antibiotic activity. And then I'll do some bioassays seeing if they are small peptides or other compounds and, uh, I do some other assays showing whether or not they're hemolytic. So would they actually be good drugs if they're hemolytic? That wouldn't be a very good drug for humans. 
Um, but yeah, we're just, this is just starting. Um, so we're still looking for partners for scaling up for the chemistry aspect of it. So are they novel compounds and could they be good drugs for humans? Well, has anyone sequenced sharks and rays and has anyone looked at their microbiome as a, you know, a, a, an accelerant to what you're doing? Yeah, there are a couple of groups that are, are doing that. And I'm actually collaborating with one group um, on this work as well. And um, yeah, so the, the collaboration is a great aspect because I'm culturing them. Obviously, I'm not culturing many of them because most, most bacteria can't be cultured. Um, so looking at these um, along with the metagenomic type work will be um, how we try, try to understand what compounds they're producing and if they could be producing a function for the shark and if they could be producing a novel compound even. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and get in touch? Um, I suppose it would be to look at my website and uh, look at the publications which need to be updated on that website at University of South Carolina, Beaufort. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's uh, been really, really interesting. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.